every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. The administration of elections is primarily a state and local responsibility. Whether you voted for the very first time or waited in line for a very long time, by the way, we have to fix that. Hi, welcome to High Turnout Wide Margins. This is Brianna Lennon. I am the county clerk in Boone County, and with me is my co-host. Eric Fay, Director of Elections in St. Louis County, Missouri. And today we are really excited to have David Becker, who is currently at the Center for Election Innovation and Research, but has done tons of really good election work over the years. So we are really happy to have him uh, on the show today. So first we will jump into it. Can you give a little background and history of how you ended up working in elections? I am a lawyer. I graduated law school many, many, many years ago and back in California and um, had been practicing law um, at a couple of law firms there, was doing entertainment litigation, which um, everyone always thinks sounds really fun and sexy and is actually just business litigation for crazy people. But uh, I was in the office around 10 p.m. one night looking through boxes of documents back when lawyers actually had to look through boxes of paper documents and realizing that if I was really successful in my career and I stuck with it, the reward would be that I get to be a partner at a law firm. And there's, a, uh, there's an old saying about law firm partnerships. It's like winning a pie eating contest and the prize is more pie. So I realized I wasn't, wasn't exactly what I, how I wanted to spend my career. So what I decided to do was to apply for my dream job, knowing that I wouldn't get it, but feeling like if I at least tried, it would release me at that point. And then I could be satisfied and have no regrets that I didn't try to get my dream job and I would be a lawyer in Los Angeles for the rest of my career. And uh, my dream job was being a voting rights lawyer for the United States Department of Justice. And it had been for, you know, pretty much since high school doing something like that. And then it's a very competitive job. It's a very hard job to get. I knew I wouldn't get it. So I applied, cut to the chase. Six months later, my car is packed with everything I, have, I own and I'm moving across the country. And uh, I've lived in Washington, D.C. since then. I served as a trial attorney with the voting section of the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department. From 98 to 2005, uh, I litigated cases that went to the Supreme Court, Georgia versus Ashcroft, which was about the Georgia statewide redistricting and the 2000 round of redistrictings. I then found my way over to Pew where at the Pew Charitable Trust, I uh, led the effort to create the Electronic Registration Information Center, or ERIC. And I know, Eric, it's going to be confusing when we mention ERIC, and I'll just keep saying ERIC on this podcast so people can continue to get confused. And then in 2016, Pew got out of the election space, and I founded the Center for Election Innovation and Research to continue a lot of the work we did uh, using technology and research and data to work primarily with you all, work with election administrators at the state and local level to try to improve the work you're doing, make it more secure, make it more accessible. And then that, of course, overlapped with a lot of the work that we're seeing now, which is simply work to try to maintain and protect democracy in the United States. And One thing I want to hit on before we go into more election stuff, I read on your online biography that you also are a Jeopardy and who wants to be a millionaire champion. 
Yeah, yeah, that was a while ago, but I was on Jeopardy many, many years ago, and I was a two-time champion on Jeopardy, and I was on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire back in the primetime days with Regis. Oh, wow. So what's the trifecta of TV quiz shows? I mean, what are you going for next? Oh, I think it's American Ninja for sure. I mean, you guys have seen me. I mean, I, I, I mean, I think everyone's looking to see me uh, fall face flat onto uh, something like that. I think I'm probably done. I remember uh, as I was leaving Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, I asked, when can I be on this show again? And they literally told me as soon as everyone else in America is on the show. So I think it's going to be a while before I see another game show that I can be on. But I've I'm I'm very pleased. I have nothing to complain about with the game show circuit. I uh, I've probably moved on. I'm just very curious about the Center for Election Innovation that you've been working on. I guess two things. One is what motivated you to do it after you left Pew? I mean, I know you said that Pew had left the election space. And so this was kind of to supplement that. But what is the the goal of the center? Back in August of 2016, Pew informed me that it wasn't going to be continuing the elections work. And I was, to be honest, I was surprised at that. I mean, I I knew at that time that the work wasn't done and that we needed to continue to work to support election officials in particular and to make sure there was evidence-based election policy to push back on some of the more partisan um, aspects of election policy. And very shortly after that, I left Pew. I founded the Center for Election Innovation and Research. I'll be honest, I, I don't consider myself an entrepreneur. I never really thought of myself as someone who would start uh, a nonprofit, certainly not start a business or something like that. You know, jumped into it with both feet. I left at the time with Amy Cohen, who uh, is now uh, the executive director of the National Association of State Election Directors and worked for me for several years at Pew and was just an outstanding talent in the field of elections. And went about to founding our, our own nonprofit, which meant building infrastructure, hiring staff, fundraising, and also establishing kind of a, an identity for the organization and doing work that we felt contributed to the field. And in short, I think the best way I'd sum up the mission statement for the Center for Election Innovation and Research, or CEIR, is that we work with election officials across the political spectrum and across the country to help build elections that voters should trust and do trust. And I think this past election cycle has really shown how those are two separate things. We right now have a system absolutely, thanks to the work of people like yourselves and many, many others around the country, we have a system that voters should trust. And by the way, we're always improving upon that. It's going to get better and better and better. 2020 was much more secure than 2016. I'm absolutely confident 2024 will be more secure than 2020. But unfortunately, because there are losing candidates and their supporters who cannot process the idea that they might have lost, there is an ongoing effort to make sure that there are tens of millions of Americans who don't trust that elections are secure and have integrity. And uh, that's unfortunate because it's the exact opposite of the reality, which is voters should never have been more confident in security and integrity of the election than they were in November 2020. So I know one thing I want to ask about during this podcast are the grants that CEIR did in, in 2020. But prior to that, what were the main activities of CEIR 
uh, prior to 2020 or leading into the November 2020 election? So I'd say we were heading into the year of 2020. We were focused primarily on a couple of areas. One, voter registration. Um, given my work with the Electronic Registration Information Center, um, which has grown from seven states in 2012, which was the first year it operated, and now includes 30 states plus the District of Columbia and, and about two-thirds of all registered voters in the United States. You know, and those, the states that are in Eric include states as blue as Connecticut, Illinois, and Oregon, and states as red as Utah, Alabama, and South Carolina. What ERIC does, the Electronic Registration Information Center, is it helps those states keep their voter lists more accurate by helping them inform them as to when someone might, has moved, might have moved out of their state or when someone might have died. And it also allows for states to reach out to people who appear to be eligible but aren't yet registered and get them registered in the most uh, accurate and secure way possible. It can also mean doing it not necessarily right before a major election. It might happen over the course of time. So, you know, especially for local election officials, you don't see that big spike in voter registration activity right at the deadline before an election. So we've done a lot of work uh, and research around the use of the Electronic Registration Information Center uh, to help states who are uh, using it. We've helped states on board with that. We also work in areas related to voter registration database security. We put out multiple reports on how secure the statewide databases are for voter registration, particularly given the fact that for all the talk of foreign interference with election infrastructure, the one area that um, where we've actually seen some foreign interference in the states back to 2016 was attempted cyber attacks on voter databases with uh, perhaps a, sex, a successful um, intrusion into the Illinois statewide voter registration database in, in 2016. So uh, database security is very, very important. And then we have also worked with states on an ongoing basis with regard to um, new voting machines that they've brought in. We've worked closely with Georgia as they shifted from paperless voting to auditable paper ballots in Georgia and working with states to encourage them to move to auditable paper ballots and to conduct robust audits of those ballots to confirm their results. Georgia was probably a, a great crowning achievement because we worked so closely with Georgia during the last two years to ensure that they had paper ballots, first time they've had them in two decades. And, and we all remember that uh, shortly after the election in November, not only do, did they do an audit of those ballots, they did the most statistically robust audit you can do, which is a complete 100% hand recount. Having said all of that, all of the accomplishments surrounding integrity in the election in 2020, can you go into a little bit of even everything that you just said that was accomplished in 2020? What is the landscape looking like right now from your view? The landscape is uh, pretty dire right now. For those of us who love and appreciate democracy as a form of government, uh, we see election officials facing death threats. Those death threats occurred immediately after the election, but they're ongoing today. Secretary Hobbs in Arizona is under 24-7 protection right now. Election officials in multiple states have received death threats. They've played some of them for me. I've heard some of them. They have not just been threats against the election officials themselves. 
but against their families, against small children. They've mentioned their personal homes and addresses. They've mentioned firearms. This is what public servants are going through. Again, I don't need to tell the two of you this, but you don't go into election administration to get rich, and you don't go into election administration to get famous. You never see a headline on the Wednesday after an election that everything went great. Your voters probably will only know you if they're angry at you for some reason or if something went horribly wrong. And so you see election officials like the Republican city commissioner in Philadelphia, Al Schmidt, the Secretary of State of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Nevada, Barbara Sagaski, all Republicans facing death threats, uh, facing political threats, threats to their livelihood and not just their uh, personal safety. And Democrats also receiving them, uh, Secretary of State Benson in Michigan, Secretary Hobbs, I mentioned in Arizona. That's just scratching the surface, too. I mean, local election officials are getting this as well. This is ongoing and really troubles me. What also troubles me, however, is that the losing candidate and his supporters are continuing to spread lies about the election that will have the effect of diminishing American voters' confidence in democracy as a form of government. There, we are getting to the point where there's no set of facts that will convince, potentially convince the loser that he or she lost. And the election season will never end. And they will continue to count and recount ballots until they get the count that they want, despite the fact that we have a transparent process involving observers from both parties with paper ballots that can be counted and that confirm the results. This is, we've, we've, we're better off than we've ever been in American history on that count. We are now at a point where about 95% of all Americans are casting ballots, ca casting votes on auditable paper ballots, and we're seeing more audits of those ballots than ever before. This is the best we've ever done, and we're going to do better in, the, in future years. And yet there's no amount of facts that will convince the loser and the loser supporters that they lost. Um, in such a situation, a democracy is doomed. We need to have confidence and process in a democracy. We need to have a mechanism whereby the will of the voters will enable governance. And there's no one happier at this. There's no one happier at this development than our adversaries around the world, autocrats around the world, who want citizens in a democracy to deeply doubt that a democracy can work. They don't necessarily even care who wins. They just want the losing side to doubt that they lost. And then how do you govern? And we're seeing that now. We're seeing people who are patriots only for saying the truth, which is that Donald Trump lost the 2020 election, presidential election, to be perfectly honest, it was not close. It was the widest margin in a presidential election where Barack Obama was not on the ballot in the 21st century. The electoral vote margin was exactly the same as Donald Trump won by in 2016. And in fact, the down ballot races were very, very strong for Republicans. Republicans won every swing district in the, in the United States House of Representatives. They gained in state legislatures. And we now have a situation where there are actual Congress people and state legislators who are challenging the very ballots on which they were elected. And our adversaries are cheering. 
they're thrilled at this. And it's uh, where we go from here is uh, we're, we're, in, we're in perilous territory. Uh, and back to the death threats for a moment, um, where many experienced election officials are getting out of the field. That they, the risks to themselves and their families, the um, pressures that they're under, the stress that they're under has just gotten to be too great no matter how much they love this field. And this field really is driven by love. I mean, the people you, you know when we get together for conferences, there is a passion in the people who run elections to give voice to the American people, and it has nothing to do with whether their party wins or loses. So that was a dour rundown of, of 2020. Uh, realistic, however, is it worth reemphasizing, I think, a silver lining uh, that you mentioned earlier about places like Georgia that transitioned from DREs to auditable paper ballots? Is that something that should be a bigger story within election administration that, I mean, this, this could have been a lot worse if there was nothing to audit after 2020? Yeah, that's a great point. And, it, and while it is depressing, remember I said that CEIR's work is in encouraging and supporting elections that voters should trust and do trust. You know, the previous kind of dour assessment really focuses on the do trust. But the silver lining here is that we've seen success on the should trust element like we've never seen before. I think that's what it makes it so infuriating to see so much work to try to diminish voter confidence. We've seen more states moving to auditable paper ballots than ever before. It's not just Georgia. Since the 2016 election, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Pennsylvania, those states all moved to 100% auditable paper ballots. In 2016, just to remember, Philadelphia, Philadelphia hadn't had paper ballots in generations. Georgia hadn't had them in two decades. And I shudder to think what would have happened if the losing candidate would have been able to really make these claims about the voting machine stick because there was no paper to audit. But because of the work of states, we had paper ballots, we could do audits. And fact is that we know what the outcome was in those states because we have indelible records that have been audited and can be audited. And that's a huge, huge improvement over 2016. And by the way, that effort is continuing. I mean, we're seeing that even in states where they still have some element of purely digital ballots, there are efforts to move towards paper. I think if we're not at 100% by 2024, I think we'll be at 100% paper very shortly thereafter. I think the states that have paper, many of them are talking about improving their official audits to make them more statistically robust. When you have a closely divided state and margins get very narrow, audits require you to look at more ballots to confirm the results. You know, California doesn't need to audit very many ballots in a presidential race to know that they got the right outcome because the margin of victory is so large. But states like Georgia and Arizona, they likely will. Um, and by the way, that, you know, states that Trump won as well, like North Carolina. So uh, coming up with a feasible formula for that, making it something that election officials can do is going to be important. But we've come so far on that. Um, we're doing more of that than ever before. Uh, the procedures are becoming more part of the process that every election official understands and knows. I think one of the other silver linings here, Eric, is that the media did a remarkable job this past election cycle. And I think we have more educated, informed, curious, 
reporters and journalists than ever before who know election officials, who have you on speed dial, who know to call you before they report something. That is one of the real silver linings of this past year. The media has done a remarkable job. And hopefully that'll, that'll keep going even, um, normally they move on from elections during this, uh, the, the off year. Normally, um, maybe the three of us would have some quiet time to spend with our families or go on vacation. If you found it, please let me know because I have not found any quiet time yet. Uh, we'll see if that, if, if that happens. Just the work of maintaining citizens' confidence in democracy as a form of government is as relevant today as it was on November 3rd and the days after. So are you finding when you're talking to local election officials, because not everyone wants to be in the spotlight. Lots of people go into elections specifically because they don't want to be in the spotlight. They, they don't consider themselves political. They don't consider themselves particularly partisan. Do you have any examples of very successful ways that you've seen local election officials try to diffuse situations or try to bolster some confidence when they're faced with these challenges? So first and foremost, when I've been talking to election officials at both the state and local level, I'm sensing weariness like I've never heard before. I've been doing this for well over two decades. You know, as we talked at the beginning, most election officials in this country are not just doing a job. It's not something they're doing for a paycheck. It's a calling. It's a calling many people have fallen into accidentally, but it's a calling and you feel a duty. Um, it's one of the reasons I love working with election officials as much as I do. And they're tired. They're under constant attack just for doing their job and just for telling the truth. And that's really difficult, but that doesn't mean they've stopped working and to your point, you know, the thing they're trying to do as much as possible is to be transparent, to, to exercise aggressive transparency, active transparency, push information out as much as possible. Unfortunately, people are so siloed with the media that they look at, the people who are doubting the election are not understanding the security measures that were in place, the integrity of the election, the transparency, their own opportunities to go and observe you know, in Maricopa County, Arizona, where this ongoing spectacle of a so-called audit is happening seven months after an election, there were multiple opportunities for observers to go watch the audit. There were two additional machine audits done in February by two different firms. There were opportunities to be involved with that. And so aggressive transparency is the best policy, but it's also not going to magically fix these things. The damage being done to democracy is, is very severe. It's gonna take us a long time to build our way out of this. But that being said, I have seen election officials use such ingenuity to offer opportunities for voters to vote in convenience and safety. Uh, you know, a special shout out to election officials in places like Harris County, Texas, third largest county in the United States. Texas has some very difficult and restrictive laws around voting. They're in the middle of a global pandemic, and they came up with this ingenious ideas for drive-through voting, still very secure, still with integrity, still under the um, observation of professional election officials and observers. They had 24-hour 24 24 voting in some places. They erected temporary structures out 
side so people could vote with confidence and not have to go in, indoors if they didn't feel comfortable doing that. Those efforts are now under attack from the Texas legislature, but those efforts were ingenious. It, it showed how, um, how election officials are thinking about voters first. So those kinds of efforts, the transparency that we've seen in the process, the constant work with the media. 20 years ago, working with the media was not a part of an election administrator's job, really. Now, uh, no election administrator should be hired without you know, some communications training and efforts to really uh, work with the media and know how to talk about some of these issues. The ones who have been successful uh, are doing all of those things. But I, sh I should also say the biggest variable right now as to whether or not election officials are facing threats and challenges and widespread disinformation is something that's completely out of their control. And that's the outcome of the election and the margins. There, there's a reason that election officials in Georgia are facing death threats and election officials in North Carolina are not. So I mentioned earlier in the podcast that in 2020, CEIR provided grants or funding. I don't know what you all called it there to some election officials across the country. Obviously, a lot of folks know CTCL did some of that in 2020. How did that come about for you all? How is it different than some of the other things that were going on in 2020? And what good did it do from what you saw? Yeah, so uh, CEIR did offer grants to the states. The way it was uh, kind of divided up, CERS grants only went out to state election offices. We didn't really uh, envision ourselves as a grant-making organization um, when 2020 began. Um, but um, as we moved through 2020, what became painfully clear was that um, Congress and the state legislatures were not going to act to provide adequate funds to election offices to provide um, for all of the resources you needed to conduct an election with all-time high turnout during a global pandemic. Um, Congress gave a little bit of money, $400 million in, uh, in the spring of 2020 through the CARES Act, but that was, uh, everyone acknowledged that was insufficient, that did not really um, get the job done as election officials had to not only completely reimagine the polling place, find new polling places, recruit new poll workers, purchase PPE, purchase plexiglass, cleaning supplies, et cetera. Um, but also as rules were changing to some degree, polling places were changing. The need to recruit more poll workers, as I mentioned, uh, maybe availability of mail ballots, early voting sites were changing. Educating voters about this, these changing procedures in the election became um, urgent. And especially when you considered how many new voters were going to be participating in this election. We had tens of millions of people who had never voted before vote in 2020. And giving them the information necessary to navigate the, the voting process became really crucial. So uh, this wasn't my idea, actually. I got a call from staff for Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan in late August. And they said to me, if you had some money to give to the states, would that be helpful and what would you use it for? I had talked to enough states, I knew, I said, yes, it would be very helpful and would have been primarily helpful at the state level, since the states aren't the ones running the election as you, as you guys are at the, at the local level, 
they don't need to buy really PPE. That's much more something you would need to buy because you're the ones who are um, recruiting and training the poll workers and, and um, providing them with resources. Um, but they, the states really needed to provide voter education to, to voters, to let them know how to navigate the process, to direct them to the, to the right sites where they could get information, to let them know how dates had changed, if they had changed. There were places that the changes had nothing to do with the pandemic. I mean, people in Philadelphia were, and Georgia were going to be voting on new machines regardless of the pandemic. That happened well before the pandemic. People in Pennsylvania were having an option to vote by mail that they had never had before based on a bill that was passed by the Republican legislature in October of 2019, well before the pandemic. So there were things that voters needed to consider and be aware of as they tried to navigate this process as we were going to have 160 million people vote for the first time in American history, 20 million more people voting in this election in November than we've ever seen in an election in American history. Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan gave us funding for regranting out to the states. And uh, what we quickly, within a period of, of a month, we were able to stand up a regranting portal and process. I personally contacted the chief election official in every one of the 50 states and DC. It was, uh, these grants were available to any state, regardless of party, regardless of whether it was a swing state or not. The states then made an application and they said how much they thought they needed and what they would need it for and how it met with the grant requirements. And I'm very proud of the fact that we uh, regranted out over $60 million to states, 23 states, almost evenly divided between Republican and Democratic and nonpartisan chief election officials in those states. And um, that the money was used nonpartisan, very importantly, voter education to all voters. This could not be partisan. We are a C3. We work with Republicans and Democrats. And uh, the grants were a huge success. We put out a report on it. It's on our website, which is electioninnovation.org. Talks about exactly how much each state requested. Every state that requested a grant got exactly the amount they requested. We did not use discretion. Many of the states had some wonderful data to share with us about how effective the grants were. I think a, a great example was Pennsylvania where you may recall in uh, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court in September had a ruling uh, that was kind of a split decision for the campaigns. Uh, both, both campaigns got something they wanted and something they didn't like so much. This Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled that mail ballots could be received up to three days after the election, so long as there was evidence that they were cast before, before election day or on election. But they also said that any ballot, any mail ballot that wasn't in an inner secrecy sleeve, a second envelope, had to be thrown out. That's a split decision. Those were the, the campaigns argued differently on those things. But it meant that there needed to be an unprecedented education campaign for Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania voters to understand how to successfully cast their mail ballots, both how and when. And remembering that Pennsylvania voters didn't have widespread experience with mail voting. They had that law had only passed allowing widespread mail voting without an excuse in October of 2019. So the education component was very, very real. And there was significant concerns that there was some thought that the, that, that the ultimate decision to allow for ballots to be received three days after the election might be overturned by the United States Supreme Court or might cast some doubt on the outcome of the election. And so there was a real effort to try to educate people not to rely upon those three days, but to get their ballot in by election day. And the good news is during the primary, 
well, first the bad news. During the primary election, they had tens and tens of thousands, I think it was 60,000 ballots come in after election day with a turnout that was about one third of what the general election turned out, turnout turned out to be. Uh, but in November, there were only about 10,000 ballots that came in in those three days. That's a huge victory when you consider that the margin of victory in the presidential race was over 80,000 ballots. So those ballots were irrelevant in the outcome of the presidential race, and that was very important, and that was a, that, that's a success story thanks to the voter education effort undertaken by the Pennsylvania Secretary of State's office and local election officials throughout Pennsylvania. And we are very proud to help provide them with grant funding to accomplish that. Those, those kinds of things, I mean, we're, we're only beginning to measure how successful the work done by election officials at the state and local level was and how it was aided in part by the funding that was received by those officials from CEIR and CPCL, which is why it makes it all the more disturbing to see some states now restricting the ability to accept those funds, although we all hope we'll never need it ever again. But I, I would hope that if government fails to step up and provide adequate resources to election officials in the future, that there is an opportunity for philanthropy to do it, so long as it's done in a nonpartisan way. We're coming up on our ending time, and I was hoping that you could impart some sage advice from your time in elections. It's an odd time to be a new clerk, hearing about all of these things happening, not knowing what that means for your future or what your job is going to look like in the next five years. Can you offer some words of encouragement, but any, anything that you want to offer to somebody that is just getting into this work? Yeah, I do have words of encouragement. For those who are just now getting into this field or who are thinking about getting into this field, you're entering into a noble profession. You're entering into a profession that makes democracy possible. And you are likely to find a passion in this work that many people never find in their entire lives. I, I speak from personal experience on that. Not only that, you're entering into a community. The community of election officials is the strongest community I've, I've ever been a part of. Uh, I have never actually run elections. I've, I've never um, had that challenge placed before me. And I'm in awe of the people who meet that challenge all the time. A lot of voters think that election officials wake up on election day and put on an election. And uh, everyone who works in elections knows this is something that you're working 365 days a year on. Um, and uh, in the past cycle, you were probably working um, a lot closer to 24 seven than, than you would have liked. But the value you get out of that, the community you build, the network of people, that will support you regardless of party is the strongest I have ever seen. Thanks for listening to this episode of High Turnout, Wide Margins. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you tune in next time to another episode of High Turnout, Wide Margins.